Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. So, Mark Ellen, I have a Stankwaddy game. Are you ready? I'm ready. Bring it on. You have no doubt noticed the uh, fashion in the world of hip-hop for naming solo acts as if they are small children with the, uh, the how do I put it, the kind of precursor, little or lil. Yes, little young. Uh, well, well, okay, these are all lils. Lil, okay. okay. So what's going to follow is a load of hip-hop performers who call lil something or other, yes? Yep. But one of them is not a hip-hop performer, okay? And you've just got to spot the one that's a ringer. Okay, right? but they're real, but they're not in that idiom. Okay, so one yeah, is yeah. real, but not in that idiom. Right, okay, here we go. Yep. Little Baby. Yep. Little pump, little plum, little dicky, little peep, a little flip, little baby, little pump, little plum, little dicky, little pimp, little peep, sorry, little flip. Which well, one? that's brilliant. Um, pump, I think, is a hip hop performer. I just feel these are the right names, right? Dicky, also. Peep seems to be a kind of peeps type thing, isn't it? Flip is also slightly hip hop. Um, baby, too. I mean, I'm, my only memory of Lil Plum as a, a Beano reader back in the day was there was an Indian score. You're correct. You're correct. It's, it's not a squaw, not a squaw. It was a little boy. The little boy. He had a little boy. headband with a single feather at the back. <laughs> was that the guy? He was, wasn't he? A little so it- fringe jacket. Here we go. Little Baby is actually Dominique Armani Jones, born, yeah, yeah. Uh, born 1994. Little Pump is Gazzy Garcia, born 2000. Little Dicky is David Andrew Bird, born in 1988. Little Peep is Gustav R., Swedish, who was uh, born in 1996. Little Flip is Wesley Eric Weston, born 1981. But Little Plum 
Was it the it, Beano or the Dandy? It was the Beano, wasn't it? It was. Uh, it was in the Beano. It was. Uh, it was his invention of uh, Leo Baxendale. And he you was say heap good this that and the other. There, there you go. Yeah. There you go. And you know what his full name was? Go on. His full name was Little Plum Stealing Varmint. Varmint. No, no, no. Try that now. Try that now. <laughs> Stealing anyway. Varmint. No, well, you you did well there. You did well. That's what fantastic. Oh well, I've just been I've just been sent to stack one of one of our listeners, Nick Foreman. Oh, very good. Shall I follow? It's it's a fairly straightforward spot the odd one out number. Right. Okay. And he says, all but one of the following have appeared in Radio 4's The Archers. Oh. You've got to spot the one. that Now, as you're a major Archers... Well, uh, I've, Dave, I've stopped listening to The Archers. <clears throat> the oh, well, this, that, this won't affect anyway, 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 back in the day, actually. Right, okay, so one of these six, seven names. One of these didn't appear on The Archers. Okay, Chris Moyles, Pet oh. Shop Boys, oh, God. Toya, Steve Lamack, Morrissey, Terry Wogan, and John Peel. Well, John Peel will definitely be on it. He, he was. was a big fan. Huge fan. He was on it. Yeah. And uh, Terry Wogan will have been on it. Yeah, he was too. Um, Pet Shop Boys will have been on it. The Pet Shop Boys were on it. I can remember this really well. It was in 2014, and there was a big thing about the Loxfest Festival. Do you remember there was a right, festival? Right, yes, 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 yes. And there was some big issue about the noise and how it's going to yeah, affect yeah. the community. And I think the village landlady, was it Jolene and her band, the Midnight Walkers? Oh, that's were going to right, be on? that's right, that's right. That's yeah. right, Midnight Walkers, very funny. So, yeah, so they definitely were on and really, really loved it. Go on, so we've got uh, you've got a few to go. Mor- was Morrissey on it? Gosh, I mean, he could have been. Um, I'm going to guess that Morrissey was on it. Was he on it? No, he wasn't. Morrissey's so he one. was the one that was Morrissey's the ringer. He was approached by them. With right. some storyline and declared himself to be intrigued and delighted, but nothing ever happened. So, uh, yeah, no, he was the only one that was, but Steve Lamack was on. I can't remember what capacity now, but wow. he was. That's amazing. I, I think somebody, maybe somebody had a Batman and they were sending a tape off to somebody. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Chris Paul yeah. was probably the same sort of thing. And Toya, definitely, I can, can remember Toya being on. So that's very good. Yeah, well, very good. Well, that's, thank, Nick Foreman, thank you very much. Thank anybody you very much, do, Nick. Please yeah. send them in because they're always very welcome. Send them in. While we're uh, just uh, clearing up uh, business from last week, we were talking about um, the enemy encyclopedia of rock and the the enormous pl- part it played in people's lives. And there was one uh, piece of feedback I got that I don't think I read out. Lindsay Moss says, my entire music education as a child came from the enemy encyclopedia of rock. Never forgot my dad casually name dropping Wet Willie and me insisting he was making it up before running through to consult the book, which he knew I would do. That's brilliant. That's fantastic, isn't it? Terrible name for a band. (laughs) Absolutely. But still providing humour many years later. And didn't you get back to Nick Logan, who who was one of the editors, wasn't you? And and tell him, and he was very touched, wasn't he? he? Was, Nick was very you know, touched. Yeah, Nick they... has no idea that that people still collect it and love it and are fond of it, and you know it was a big part of their lives, which it was, you know. And so I think he was. He was it out. must have sold a lot of copies. Yeah. Um, at the time, well, the fact but... they kept reprinting it and updating it so uh, indicates that uh, that people people collected it, didn't they? It was yeah. really good. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So this week's on the sad 
passing of Wilco Johnson at the age of what seventy five was he seventy five. Um, which, to be fair, was uh, a lot later than it was expected. Oh God, to no! Be, I mean, he was uh, originally thought that you know, seven years ago, wasn't it, that he had that yeah. operation? We had that terrible uh, uh, yeah. cancer, and uh, you know, did his he did a farewell tour, if I remember right? He made a kind of farewell album. Oh, well, we'll talk about that in a second. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, You know, this um, he certainly had a extraordinary last lap, didn't he? But an extraordinary, extraordinary life and career, really. I mean. Genuinely unique person, wasn't he? Um, uh, oh, God, completely. There were two. I mean, it's also nice that in his lifetime, he would have seen both the Julian Temple films, yes. which I'm sure you've seen, Oil City Confidential, which came out, I think, about 2010, I can't remember, which is basically all about, you know, Canvey Island and Dr. Feelgood. And then later, the one after the uh, his illness called The Ecstasy of Wilco Johnson. But I was amazed by things I just didn't know about him in those early things. You know, he, uh, you know, he was at college, wasn't he studying um, uh, Anglo-Saxon and yes. ancient Icelandic sagas, you know, Newcastle on Tyne university doing English language and literature. And, you know, there's bits in this interview with Julia Tepper where he quotes Piers Plowman. Yeah. Now there aren't many people who do it. There's a lovely bit where he says, um, he's talking about what he does when he's got some free time. He said, well, the other day he said, I read Paradise Lost. He said, wow, best of luck. It took pretty much all day. To, I mean, it's about an eight-hour stint. He said, with a break for lunch. That's <laughs> fantastic. So again, there just there aren't that many people. And when you saw him on stage, you probably wouldn't imagine this. No, thing. absolutely. Because I mean, uh, don't, don't forget when he went to university and those, you know, so he's born in what 1947 or something like yeah. that. You know, when the days when he went to university, there weren't that many people, certainly from working class backgrounds, who went to university. You no, know, that's right. it was relatively low percentage in those days. Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't going to uni. Yeah. <laughs> there was clearly something about him, you know. A very he, bright. There's an amazing bit in the in the thing where he he's I must have been, I suppose maybe early 70s, he's got very long hair. Yeah. And he's in the audience for question time. Have you ever seen that? Clip? Oh, really? Is he? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. And they're talking about and he harangues the politicians on stage for allowing the oil companies to 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 ruin his uh, right. beloved Canvey Island. And there's lots about Canvey Island in the film, too, just how much it meant to him as a as a place, you know, the whole kind of um fiction that he invented the whole kind of romance of, of kind of the Essex Delta like the Mississippi Delta and he was the Robert Johnson character and Wilco Johnson was kind of Robert Johnson it was just amazing and he talked about the the incredible light in the sky uh when it was lit up by the oil refineries and also there's a bit about that you know that kind of character the self confident, self-contained, quite competitive character identity that people develop if they live on islands. And Canvey Island kind of was an island, wasn't it? I mean, it's not strictly speaking an island, but it kind of is. You know, it's well, also, from the also, the other thing to connect it with the uh, the the America of the Deep South is the floods. You know, yeah. The terrible Canvey Island floods that, you know. Oh, yeah. 19, he remembered that, too. He so remember I think they were in about 1952, 53. Yeah. So he would have been about five, and there's pictures of people sitting on the roofs of their houses and so all of that kind of affected the kind of folklore of the place really interesting and then he had that period when he hitchhiked off to when people weren't he, doing that he did the hippie trail when he nobody did, the hippie did. Trail. he went to india when when yeah. people just talked about it and not many people did it absolutely incredible really and then he was a teacher yeah worked as a school teacher yeah um but you know they they um got together with the, with the other members of what became uh, dr feelgood and uh, and i do think 
What's fascinating to me about Dot Feelgood is that, you know, they, they were just like many bands that you would have found in little corners of England in the early 70s. You know, that there were, you can, if you see pictures of the early Dr. Feelgood, they just looked like the blokes I used to work in record shops with. You know yeah. what I mean? They were, they, you would kind if you were being kind, you would describe them as unkempt. You know what I mean? Yeah. None, none of them had ever thought about their appearance at all. There were no, there's no card, grooming cardigans and leather dra- jackets, and there were hair coming out at all, at all angles, like a kind of pies, badly and, uh, pints bad. in a dimple jug. Yeah, absolutely, pints in a dimple jug. But something happened in Dr. Feelgood that I think is hugely instructive. And thinking about Dr. Feelgood, I was I thought to myself, this surely is the group that has most to teach all other groups that came afterwards, which is to work out what could make you unique. Yeah. And they suddenly worked it out, you know. And and part of it was just the, the their adoption of a different look. Um, you know, because they used to look like the guys I knew, they just hung about the pub, and they suddenly just transformed themselves into kind of the guys that the guys I knew hung about in the pub would avoid. You know, yeah. they suddenly looked quite intimidating. Yeah. You know, they've shorter hair and, you know, Lee Brello wearing the suit. Very aggressive on stage. Very aggressive on stage. And as Mick Farron famously said in the the enemy at the time, they looked as if they'd come together in some particularly unsavory region of the British Army. Yeah, yeah. Which they did. Yeah. You know, they didn't look like the guys who hung about like I knew that hung about and listened to little feet records or whatever. I always got the feeling that at some stage in the musical development of uh, of Dr. Feelgood, somebody could have been a member of the band, could have been a manager, could have been anybody, had kind of, so to speak, gone round the back of the, of the band and suddenly just tightened up everything they did. So it's as if they'd, they'd gone round the back and found the hidden switch that enabled them to go... And then suddenly... They were a totally different group. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah. It's, it, it's suddenly, absolutely everything's on edge. And yeah. suddenly every number you're playing is the last number you're ever going to play in yeah, your life. nervy, raw. Absolutely. Raw, unsettling. There, there, was no, there was nothing loose about them anymore, if there ever had been. Yeah. And uh, I was... Um, I remember going to see them. Uh, I, I went to see them on the last night... Of the Naughty Rhythms Tour, yeah, it was called. This would be seventy six, I suppose, something like that, seventy five, maybe. And they were playing at North London Poly, um, and and they were the the, the lineup of the Naughty Rhythms Tour was Kokomo, yeah, I remember, Chili Willy and the Red Hot Peppers, and Dolly Feelgood, and they were all really good in their different ways, um. You know, Kokomo were kind of they were session players, really. You know, they were they were very practiced, very kind of smooth. Chilly Willie was sort of zany, Notting Hill, Notting Hill version of the Flying Burrito Brothers, I suppose. And then there was Doctor Feelgood, and and Doctor Feelgood took that stage, and you thought immediately to yourself, they've got that thing that great groups have got, which most great groups don't know they've got 
which is internal drama. There, there's, there's drama going on yeah. absolutely all the time. And in the case of Don Fielder, the drama was mainly between Wilco and Lee Brillo. Yeah. That, that there was, it seemed as if there was a fight was going to break out. Well, it clearly never was going to break out at all. But that was always, that was always the feeling. And that he, yeah, Wilco, you never got the feeling they loved each other. They weren't a kind of gang of brothers. It was really edgy, wasn't it? Really edgy, going yeah. tearing towards him and then going, you know, clockwork mouse reversing away. Yeah. And, um, and you couldn't take your eyes off them, and particularly you couldn't take your eyes off Wilco because he had those really staring eyes under that pudding bowl haircut, you know. He would stare at members of the audience, then he would raise the guitar up like a machine gun. Do you remember that? Yeah, absolutely. And kind of just appear to kind of mow down the front row. And they were just extraordinary in the sense, I was thinking about this yesterday, that, you know, the contrast between those three groups, and like I say, they were all wonderful. But, you know... Kokomo and Chili Willy played the music. And Dr. Feelgood, the music played them. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You know, it was completely in charge of them. Something else had taken over. Yeah. Dr. Feelgood. And, uh, you know, you know, a, a lot of the obituaries said when Wilco died, oh, you know, trailblazer of a punk and all that stuff. Well, all right, fair enough. But you know, Dr. Feelgood were just huge for a very short period of time. And I've got, I've got out here their first three three records here. So you got Down by the Jetty, which don't forget came out on mono, which is a big story yeah. at the time. You know, because it seemed very unlikely anybody would ever make a mono record again. And then, and then Malpractice, where they outposed in front of a gentleman's hairdressing salon. And then Stupidity, their live album, which made at Sheffield City Hall, which went to number one. What do all those three long-playing records have in common, Mark Allen? They were all made in the year 1975. Yes, all that's right. Can you Incredible. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Really astonishing. Rate of progress. Because you know, they were just, they were absolutely flavour of the month. For, you know, flavour of the year. But you've got to be, it did sound like, he didn't sound like anybody else, you know. We oh, did yeah. a podcast with him, which we should trail actually at the end of this. I'll dig it out. I had I had a quick listen to uh, the end of it um, yesterday. We did a podcast for Word. He came into the office. I asked him to bring guitar and a little battery amp, and it's oh, it's fantastic actually. And also, he talks about being on stage at the Wembley at the Rock and Roll Festival, Rock Roll Festival, seventy-two, and he was in the band that supported Heinz. Yeah, well, I think was painted up. I think he said they looked like kind of Tutankhamun, gold paint. And he had to explain to him what teddy boys were. And he's on the same bill as you know um, uh, Chuck Berry, but Chuck, Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis. But also, yeah. he got his act, didn't he, from from Wayne Kramer of the MC? That's right, he did. Yeah, really? he talks about that. Yeah. But no, it was um, fantastic. And he talked about learning how to play the guitar. And, you know, he started off with, you know, idolizing Hank Williams. And then, of course, it was Johnny Kidd of the Pirates, you know. And then he demonstrates that way he plays, which is this brilliant kind of percussive, locomotive yeah, yeah. rhythm style with the little tweaks and the little frills that make it rhythm and lead, you know. And when he died, I thought it was interesting that so many people, Paul Weller, um, Graham Coxon, um, you know, Franz Ferdinand, you know, talked about how influential it was. Clem Burke, too. Clem Burke said that there was a party where I think it was them and Blondie and 
Ramones and Richard Hell and people. And somebody bought back a copy, I think it was in 1975, of one of those records, and they played nothing else all evening. So my my feeling about him is that although your Eric Clapton's and your Jimmy Hendrix's affected people in an enormous way in terms of the, the stylists who played a certain way within an idiom, I think he was responsible for, for starting the sound of whole movements, you know. Andy Gill of Gang of Four is another one he talked yeah, about. Yeah, definitely, definitely. He used to say that we listened to that and we just adopted that approach. So it was not just the way he played, but it was the kind of brittle, incendiary, um, you know, uh, aggressive uh, style that a lot of those industrial kind of new, new wave uh, acts use. I think he, he was fantastically influential. Yeah, hugely. Um, and then, then, of course, he... he left Dodd Feelgood, didn't he? You know, when they were... Well, he talked about that out. too, and that was really interesting because they couldn't... It was such a tragedy that they couldn't resolve it. You know, you look back at that now, and that's another lesson that groups ought to learn, you know, if they were managed right or whatever. You know, that when Radio 2 were doing, you know, when he died the other day and they kept playing songs like Milk and Alcohol and saying, remember the great... And that, was, that wasn't thinking, him, was it? I know, you're thinking, he wasn't on this record. It's obviously on the Radio 2 computer. It is, Doctor. That's it obviously what... just hit that's the thing, a, up it comes. Don't 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 don't. He had left the band by that yeah, stage, which reminded you that actually he wasn't in the band for very long, really. Yeah. But three, I mean, three, three big ages. albums in a year. Yeah, yeah. The band went on for ages with all sorts of other people. But he talked about how they just didn't get on in the end. And it was one of those kind of really classic things where he was taking lots of speed and they were all drinking and they were kind of different cultures, you know. And uh, they kind of fell out a bit. And then suddenly he was sacked. You know, and in a in a kind of properly organised, grown up, real modern world, that probably wouldn't have happened. Somebody would have mediated. Somebody would have said, "Let's just work this out." But he was thrown out, and he was absolutely heartbroken. And it took him a really long time to get over it. I can remember Robert Wyatt telling me about being thrown out of the soft machine. He said it took him years to get over it. It was a real mortal wound, you know. Do you know it's really funny that this? Um, I um. We we did in the last days of Word. We did we we had a gig at the Lexington across the road where we had Wilco. We did Wilco with Dylan Howe and Norman uh, Watroy. Yeah, true. Just fantastic. God, they were good. They were brilliant. And, uh, and we used to set up these gigs at the Lexington. It was quite a high stage at the Lexington. And uh, and I used to I I was the DJ, so that meant that I was up in the bit to the side of the stage and above above the band. You know? Yeah. And once I got up there, I couldn't move. You know, couldn't get in or out without crossing the stage. And so I I was there for for pretty much that whole thing with Wilco, and uh, I was in a perfect position to see him on stage, which was just brilliant. Delightful. But more to the point, earlier in the day. When they'd done their kind of sound check and they were kind of hanging around, there was there was a dressing room, but it was a tiny dressing room. So they were out in the the place itself. They're just sitting in a corner corner, and there was Wilco and there was Norman and uh, and Dylan, and then there were roadies and whatever I don't know hangers on. And he did not stop talking. No, he just did not stop talking. And you thought to yourself. My God, the rest of the band must find this hard work. Because yeah. you know? <laughs> clearly nobody's going to say, Wilco, just calm down, pipe down. Yeah, because you're Wilco, you're in charge. No, I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure it was impossible to deal with, but yeah, yeah. it seems such a shame. And he, yeah. of course, he didn't see it coming either. Yeah. He had no idea that the other three had got sick to death of him. And oh. uh, he was heartbroken. So he was then. Really good at- 
So, so he talks he, about his... Oh, go on, yeah. He, well, he re-emerged, didn't he? I was playing yeah. this yesterday. He joined the Blockheads. Yeah, he did. He? You know, because uh, when Chaz Jankel left the Blockheads, you know, post... post New Boots and Pennies and uh, Do It Yourself, uh, he left. And, and oddly enough, Wilco joined the Blockheads. Yeah. Which you would have thought... With Ian Dury, they don't need anybody else to start a fight in an empty room, do they, really? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I've, I've, I've just playing this record. It's actually quite good. It wasn't much of a hit. Uh, and he contributed, well, the tunes, because Dury wrote all, all the lyrics. Yeah. Superman's Big Sister, Superior Skin and Blister. And uh, it's got a track called, of course, Fucking Ada. Because this I is remember that. And uh, take your elbow out of the soup. You're sitting on the chicken, which is, which is just a fantastic record. I do recommend if anybody's got a copy of that, of that uh, laughter, uh, yeah, laughter by Enduring the Blockheads with it with Wilco Johnson on. Get it out and play it. Oh, he's so good. No, but, we should run that podcast. And he's so it's so emotional too. He talked about. Irene, his wife, which is one of those great relationships they met when they were teenagers, you know, yeah. married for 40 years. She died actually of cancer in 2004 yeah, or whatever. And he said he was completely heartbroken about that. And then he had this extraordinary thing where he got ill and, and was told. Well, he, that, he just and this, he made a really was... interesting point about that. He said when he when he was ill and he was diagnosed with this, with this, this terminal cancer, and he said, weirdly, he said, I felt very, very kind of accelerated and very... Um, very, very kind of optimistic, I felt, and yeah, so, well, yeah, you very are, accelerated. You got Coach Johnson. Yes, quite, yeah, but you got very little time left, so you got to do all these things. But he said, "I kind of knew what my position was," yeah. and he said, "When I was told that uh, after the operation that actually that I'd beaten the cancer and I had survived," he said, "I was really disorientated." He yeah. said, "Because I kind of understood the idea that my life was going to be finite, and I'd come to accept that." It's a really interesting point because you know you imagine that if somebody told you that news, you just throw your hat in Hats there. Said, in the air. Yeah. He said, "Actually, I was really, really shaken by it because I kind of it upset the whole rhythm of what my life was going to be." You know, obviously he was immensely grateful, and it was another seven or eight That's years. That's really you know. interesting. I, just, interesting. I, I think it's absolutely fascinating. I can't believe nobody's made a film about it or based on it. I mean, I know you say that you know Julian Templer's made the you know the film about Wilker Johnson, but it's. It's maybe you can never make it work as a, as a fictional narrative, but it is just extraordinary to be told in your sixties, which is presumably what he was. Yeah, yeah, that you know you're you're going to die soon, and uh, you have to adjust to that. You have to adjust to that. Yeah, and you're then in a job, which traditionally, you know, you start at the age of eighteen, never thinking it's going to last very long. Yeah, but oddly enough, it does. Sort of half-heartedly, it does, you know. And don't forget with Wilco Johnson, and this is one of the, one of the aspects of this that fascinated me most when it happened, is that Wilco Johnson had been had been kicking around for twenty years. Nobody in the media having the slightest interest in him at all. Yeah. And then it's announced he's going to die, and suddenly they all come running with well, the. Oh, the great Wilco! I have always loved him. I've always loved him. <laughs> I have an onion in my pocket. <laughs> but didn't the same thing happen to Johnny Cash? Am I imagining it? Johnny Cash was misdiagnosed, oh, really? and I can't remember what with and told that he had, um, you know, that his, his his life expectancy was pretty finite, and I think for quite a long time carried on believing that and making records. You know, facing his up to his own mortality, etc. And um, 
and then discovered that that it was re-diagnosed and was it was all right. So and I mean, then went uh, went on the Muppet Show <laughs> to celebrate. Yeah. Totally changed overnight. <laughs> but Wilco is just it, it, it's an absolutely amazing story, you know, because because when you watched him, like I watched him, you will have watched him at that at that word gig across yeah, the road. Yeah, close up. Know? Close up, and God, he was fantastic. There was, you know, no, made no allowance for the passing years whatsoever. It was just like seeing him at the age of about 24. Um, and played with and, no pick. It's a tiny yeah. technical point, but I just couldn't believe that he could flay the strings like that and not kind of lacerate his fingers. You yeah. know, his, his hands must have been just like leather, you know. But at the same time, you've got an audience who are watching him in a different way aren't they because they're thinking this is our last chance yeah completely yeah when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue nile.com you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. that really makes a difference to a gig, you know. So for the last uh, however many years of his life, he must have been playing in front of people who thought, this is our last chance. And that, you know, that makes a difference. But didn't he, when he was first diagnosed... I feel that about so many groups now, though. Don't you feel that too? Every time I see Dylan or the Stones or whatever, you kind of think, well, I mean, is there a possibility I'll see them again? I might. I don't know. So there is that kind of slight edge to it. And when he was... When he was diagnosed or misdiagnosed or whatever, not in, we're, not, we're not accusing any medical people of, of getting it wrong here. Yeah, these things can happen. Um, didn't he so, so save all his money and collect together everything he got and say, I want to go to Japan? Because he, he'd always liked Japan. Yes, he did. That's so right. he went to Japan. I think he flew first class. You know? Yeah. And and it ended up being the first of five visits to Japan. <laughs> yes. took, took over the next years. So the long goodbye. Yes. <laughs> let that happen to all of us. Wilco yeah. Johnson, ladies and gentlemen. This is a junction in the word podcast. It separates that bit 
from this next bit. So we find ourselves once again dealing with a hot subject in the news, which is Bob Dylan's book. Ever piping hot. It's the the gift that keeps on giving, isn't it? It Now, you've been been talking about this over the last couple of weeks. So this is, what's it called again, this book? It's called The Philosophy of Modern Song. Okay. And you have, to be fair, when you talked about it, it's, it's Dylan... Choosing a load of is it seventy different records or whatever that you know that happened to mean a lot to him or he wants to write about them, and we've in the past remarked about the fact that how extraordinary it is that only four of them are by women. I know is that the last thing we were talking about. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, it's somewhat unpredictable this book, but uh, but the latest thing is there's been a controversy about the way it's been marketed. Over to you, Mark. Ellen. Well, the way, yeah, that's right. His publisher, Simon and Schuster, offered a special deal that 900 copies of this book uh, were being offered at six hundred dollars each. That's six hundred dollars, Dave. For, Can you say for, that again, Mark? Six hundred dollars each for to, uh, for the hand signed autograph, the signature signed personally by Bob Dylan that would be inside. So they put those on offer, and of course, they sold out immediately. And what happened then is that some guy tweeted his autograph and his book saying, hey, look, this is great. I've got a copy and it's signed by the great man himself. Someone else posted their uh, signature and said, that's weird because it's exactly the same as mine. And then someone else and someone else. And then somebody else posted a very, very slightly different one. And then there were also examples of ones that matched that. And there are three or four different formats of that signature that clearly have been duplicated. On I think I think there are more than three or there four. There may be more. There's only three or four that appeared on, on, on Twitter anyway. And uh, they uh, kind of, there was a kind of uprising. And they, this was then put to the publishing company. The publishing company had to come back. I mean, in the most... Um, embarrassing apology actually i mean Holy on a very high level the the managing director the ceo of simon and schuster a guy called uh, jonathan carp who had sent with each of those copies a letter from him uh vouching for the signature's authenticity had to then publicly apologize that they were not hand signed by bob dylan they were the work of what is uh, is known as an auto pen an auto pen is where somebody signs something and it can then be duplicated yeah and it can be signed kind of in ink, so it looks like a genuine suture, but it's not physically signed by... So if, if you get a letter from the President of the United States, exactly it very right. often comes from yeah. an auto-signing machine. It is. Yeah. yeah, but it appears to be signed. But in that in that context, you would totally understand that that person's not sitting at a desk having bits of paper shoved under their nose all day. <laughs> but with this, I mean, the, gen, the understanding is, certainly for $600, Dave, that you are getting Bob Dylan's autograph and also can i just interrupt at this point if the the publisher the managing director of the publisher is sending you a letter yeah 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 you know guaranteeing its authenticity absolutely and it's kind of with the understanding the the, if you sell it on you will get the price you know what i mean because if you go into the market with a thing like that yeah you want a letter saying exactly that's the confirmation that's that's what well, guarantees its authenticity. So, I mean, it's, it's absolutely staggering. So, the big issue is really where did they did they send these out knowing that they were auto pen? I mean, we just don't know. But subsequently, there has been uh, a statement from Dylan himself. In fact, I've got it here. Where are we? So, Dylan says to my fans and followers, 
Can you um, do it? In, can you do it in his voice? Do you do it like fans and followers? You, I've been made aware. This is, I don't think I do the whole thing. Well, there's some controversy about the signatures on some of my recent artwork. No, uh, he says so. So uh, my recent artwork prints, and on the limited edition philosophy of modern song, I have. I've hand signed each and every art print over the years because that was the other issue. It's the people who bought yeah. his art prints, you know, and he sold thousands of those, which are hand signed by Bob Dylan. And those aren't cheap, you know. We're immediately thinking, well, if he used an auto pen on the book, did he use an auto pen on the thing I've got up on my wall in a frame, you know? But he's saying, no, he didn't. He said, there's never been a problem. But uh, he says, however, in 2019, I had a bad case of vertigo. Sounds like a Dylan song, a bad case of vertigo. <laughs> and it continued into the pandemic years. It takes a crew of five working in close quarters with me to help enable those signing sessions. And we couldn't find a safe and workable way to complete what I needed to do while the virus was raging. So during the pandemic, it was impossible to sign anything and the vertigo didn't help. Extraordinary, isn't it? Um, with contractual deadlines looming, the idea of using an auto pen, which is clearly not written by Bob Dylan, by the way, <laughs> but uh, from the way yeah. it's worded. But anyway, fair enough. You signed it off. With the contractual uh, deadlines looming, the idea of using an auto pen was suggested to me, along with the assurance, and this is interesting, that this kind of thing is done, quotes, all the time, unquote, in the art and literary world. Mm. Now, that's don't you think that's interesting? Because all the people were thinking, well, if Bob Dylan's signing his books by Autopen, and I bought a copy of so-and-so's book, Big Celebrity, was that also signed by Autopen? He is suggesting here that that is a standard procedure, isn't he? That's what he's saying. Oh, well, I've never heard of it. No, no, no. It's, it's, I think that's quite interesting. He said, using a machine, he says, was an error in judgment, and I want to rectify it immediately. I'm working with Simon and Schuster and my gallery partners to do just that. And my gallery partners—that's interesting. This is—it's very. I mean, that actually, I only just noticed that. This is, n- and my this, gallery partners. So this this that- will not lie down. Actually, that this will is, not that's because not because you're you're selling something uh, as autographed, and 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 now that's called into question. Well, that beyond really calling the question, they have admitted that it's not. And he's also saying that this is done all the time. I think it's a big story. I really do. So Simon and Schuster, I mean, it's really embarrassing for them because clearly they must have known it was an auto pen, mustn't they? They must have done. And it's complicated because, I mean, just getting Bob Dylan to sign 900 copies in itself is a logistical nightmare. Normally well, people go to the books, they as you were the, saying. Go you to go printer. to where the books are, the print, printers or the warehouse or the publishing yeah. company, whatever, and you sign them. To take 900 books physically to the person who's going to get the pen yeah. out is, is quite yeah. a complicated thing. Yeah. So Simon & Schuster, it appears, put this out at $600 a time, knowing it wasn't his original autograph. And, well, I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary story. It's extraordinary. It will run and run. And meanwhile, if you'd like to guarantee that your Christmas present is is autographed, but you can actually watch the author signing. If you'd like to come to Foils in Charing Cross Road <laughs> this coming Thursday, I will be there signing copies of my book about Abbey Road, and there will be no auto pen. No involved. auto pen in evidence. This will be done entirely live and in the moment. <laughs> the word podcast. Clearly, there is no plan. Well, it's the forty-year anniversary of Thriller, which oh um, came out. I know on November the thirtieth, I think it was in 1982. And of course, I interviewed Michael Jackson for um, Smash Hits, oh, which, yes, which was the second last interview he ever did in his life. He did a, a short phoner with the uh, 
the Daily Mail, uh, Daily Mirror, just after that, and then I never did another interview. I mean, mine was on the phone too, but it was pretty extraordinary. Actually. And that was that, that was interesting. That was interesting. It's one of those things where you talk to him and you, you got the impression that um, that he was actually extremely savvy and extremely switched on and alert yeah. about the whole idea of A and Ring the record, the material that was on it, uh, the way it was produced. Uh, the whole recording process. He was incredibly lucid. The moment you went off that and talked about anything else, he drifted into this kind of, well, it's magic, you know, this kind of strange kind of fairy tale childhood thing. And he would go on about his phone friends at the time, who were Steven Spielberg, who'd become a pal of his because he was so obsessed with E.T. He had a he had a private cinema in the house he lived in. This is before he moved to Neverland. There's some gigantic ranch anyway out in Los Angeles. And he had a private cinema where he'd invite people over and watch E.T. over and over again on a loop because it's his favourite film. His other phone friend was Adam Ant. Oh, yeah. And Adam Ant, you forget Adam Ant was a huge star in 1982. And they yeah. were kind of, they felt themselves to be kind of a, pretty much equals and he would talk to him all the time on the phone. And they'd talk about clothes. And they'd talk about... And Michael Jackson talked about fairy tales. He was happy when he was reading these fairy tales. He was reading when he was young. You know, very, very, very peculiar fellow. And uh, But the the uh, of the many extraordinary things about it, nine tracks on that record, and seven of them were were huge hit singles. Isn't that extraordinary? Was it nine? I, I, I don't there know. Were nine. There was one of his starting something, Girl Is Mine, Thriller, Beat It, Billie Jean, Human Nature, PYT. Those were the singles, I think. Yes. Post, oh, there's a lady in my post, life and baby be mine were the only other ones, and they weren't singles. But I mean, post singles. thriller, post thriller, in the American record business, they used to talk about their ambition for a record was we think this one can go six deep. So six, six, six hit deep, singles. which which meant we can get six hit singles out of it. Yeah, because that was the way. Because you know, earlier earlier on, we were talking about uh, Dot Feelgood, who yeah. made three LPs in 1975. The whole idea of making a record like Thriller was you didn't make another one for years. Yeah, because you kept it going for years, you know, and it is looked at in a certain light the most profoundly cynical long playing record ever made you know because when they gathered to make that album um quincy jones made a speech to michael jackson and uh, rod temperton and uh, bruce sweetie and the, the engineer who was there and whoever yeah. else was there he said we are here it was like the opening day of shooting of a hollywood movie we are here to save the music business because at the time the music business was in the relative doldrums. You know? Yeah. You know, they had kind of peaked with Fleetwood Mac and Star Saturday Night Fever and so forth. And then it had dipped. And this is the dip just before video. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, so they made that record in the most, you know, savvy fashion possible, which is, we're going to make sure that we've got a cut that can be played on rock radio. We're going to make sure we've got something that can be played on middle of the road, daytime radio. We're going to have one dance hit. We're going to have something that appeals to the There was a crossover Latin. with Paul McCartney, wasn't there? Absolutely. Was a, so well, every they, single thing was mapped out. Absolutely. Everything was mapped out. It took them absolutely ages to do it. And, and when... They they did the first cut. They'd warned Michael Jackson that he, he was trying to get too much signal on it. 
And that if you get that many songs, you're trying to put that many songs on, the tracks towards the end of the LP, don't forget this is in the days of the LP, it's the last days of the LP. Yeah. Um, you know, your signal on the last track uh, on each side will be really squashed. Yeah. So he was really disappointed with it, burst into tears, in fact. And they went away and pretty much did it again. And what are the tracks that they added in the second version? Beat it and Billie Jean. Unbelievable. <laughs> Just absolutely amazing. And it's amazing. You talk to people in the music business and they'll say how often it is that that happens. How often it is that that stuff comes along later where people are either desperate or they're loose or whatever, or they haven't thought about it too much. what a different it would be without what those. Totally incredible. And that uh, also, the beat, I remember when uh, Eddie Van Halen died, and we talked about that at great length, and it just, that was another extraordinary story. Yeah. That he knew nothing, really nothing about them. He, he said he remembered some Jacksons. I think he remembered the Jacksons ABC. He didn't really know anything about Michael Jackson at all. Came on and supposedly recorded that in two takes, and they used the first take or whatever. I mean, it's just, and you think what a difference that made to the song. It's fantastic, really. Because the previous record, Off the Wall, which, you know, when did that come out? 78, 78, 79, I'm not sure. Um, which was obviously a kind of slow build record. There was, you know, when that appeared, there was no great expectation yeah. that it was going to be huge. But it had been quite a while, you know, it was a few years before Thriller came back. And I remember, I think I'm right in saying this, that CBS had a little playback party for Thriller in um, in their office in Soho. And I think pretty much the only person to go was Neil Tennant. <laughs> I think I'm right in saying that. Yes, I remember that. I think it was. Why didn't we go? That's incredible. Well, I, because Jacko wasn't going to be there and nobody wants to be in a room listening to a playback of anything. No, you know, no, Neil was so of, interested in it. Yeah. Well, Neil was really interested, which fair enough, you know. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, they, you know, but Quincy Jones said this is the record that, that will save the record business. And, of course, he was right, you know, because he'd also coincided with the arrival of MTV in the United States and, it, and the arrival of the CD. Yeah. So people bought it twice. <laughs> you know? And we never put it on the cover of Smashes. Isn't that astonishing? You know, there we were with the only interview. <laughs> but then we weren't to know at the time. You know, I just had a pre-release cassette. I remember him getting very wound up about the fact. I said, well, I've got a copy of it. It's out. It's in the stores. He got oh, really, gosh. really concerned. I was going, I tell him, relax. Everything's fine. I've got an advanced cassette. Have you still so got the cassette? I, said, I wish I still had. God, that'd be that'd <laughs> you, be worth some money. You probably recorded the Toyer interview over. I it. probably did. Yeah, I've got Gary Newman on one side, and that's right. Les Neems of Hack one hundred on the other. I know. I know. The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink, and it's like being in the pub. Welcome to another birthday slot. One of our birthday patrons. Very nice to see him again, Kevin Walsh, Kevin in uh, in New Jersey. Um, now, Kevin you, uh, has a couple of uh, questions to to ch- items to chuck onto the <laughs> to the fire. Stroke chin, <laughs> stroke chin. chin. That's right. <laughs> Pensive fashion, philosophical fashion. And one was about tribute acts. What was your question about tribute acts? So, so the, the question about tribute acts is. Near near where I am, when I check the listings on local venues, it's it's close to half tribute acts at yeah, this point. And, and you know, right. I thought about doing a stackwaddy game where where I, I named some real tribute acts and then I threw a false one in there. But I think you guys already did that at some point, so I didn't want to didn't want to repeat things. But uh, but but it occurred to me, like you know, there on the one hand, I have friends who go to these things and and absolutely love them and get a lot out of them. 
every time I've gone to them, I've, I've felt sort of something missing. I don't know exactly how to describe that. Um, I went to a Beatles one one time and it was guys, I swear to God, like my age and in my shape with Beatles wigs on and trying to fit into the suits that didn't quite work. And it was painful. You know, it was really painful. And I, I also saw a Tom Petty act one time. It was actually a little bit better. They weren't trying to dress up quite as much. Uh, but we uh, we watched that and it was I guess it was an enjoyable way to to pass the time. Obviously, with Alex, you know, literally doing that as part of his job, it occurred to me, you know, is is this healthy? Like, is this healthy for is this the same as going to a bar and seeing a cover band? which I love to do too, you know, uh, but it, it seems like the tribute acts are taking up more, more and more space. But whether so it's, whether it's healthy, whether it's healthy or not, I mean, it's just obviously commercial, isn't it? Because a lot of those acts are acts that either you can't see, you know, the Smiths or the Jam or whoever, or they're the kind of acts who, when they do play the old stuff, they don't play it with a great deal of affection. <laughs> and, and it may have changed from the version you remember. And so yeah. in terms of being guaranteed an experience of hearing those songs performed live it, with some accuracy, I can understand why it's a kind of safe bet. I mean, you know, the the uh, the ABBA show is a kind of like a tribute act, really. It's not actually yeah. ABBA, is it? Well, no, point. I don't know. I mean, it's just that's just the way that uh, things are commercially, aren't they? You're guaranteed of a certain type of experience, whereas going to see uh, other groups is a liability. You spend all that yeah. money, and it could be they don't play the songs you want to play, or there's not the members of the group you thought were going to be in it, or whatever. And very few tribute acts can reform with the original lineup. The Damned recently reformed, didn't they, in Britain? And that was the original yeah. form, which is very rare, you know. That's right. Well, I think there's recently been there's recently been the emergence of a kind of you know kind of business class tribute act. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, they, they, I think I've talked about on the podcast before going to see this wonderful D Dutch group called the Analogs, oh. yeah. who do the Beatles records that they never performed live, and they do yeah. them just spookily, brilliantly. Yeah. I think in the States, there's the is it the Fab Faux? Yeah, yeah. yeah. New York session men, they do a very similar kind of thing. Yeah. And I think that's a wonderful, wonderful thing, actually. That's what I was thinking. The, the, the thing about the Beatles and the kind of tribute to the Beatles, it strikes me as a little bit like Gilbert and Sullivan. You know, Gilbert and Sullivan have been dead for a hundred years or whatever it is. But still, people go out and troops of people perform the, the great, you know, operators of Gilbert and Sullivan in the manner that they were done in the 19th century. And yeah. that's the way people want them. And they probably, if anything, do them better now than they would have done them yeah. back then, you know. And I think yeah. that's probably what's going to happen with certain things. So I think it happens with the Beatles. It's obviously happened with Pink Floyd, and the Australian Pink Floyd are apparently very good. I've not yeah. seen them at all. But I think I think there's a lot to be said for the fact that nobody goes to see Pink Floyd to look at Pink Floyd. That's the beautiful thing. Whereas if you're on stage, David Gilmore's <laughs> birthday party. That is a great point. If you're, you're, if right. you're on stage saying, I'm Tom Petty, the, everybody in the audience is going, no, you're not. No, you're not. <laughs> yeah. 
you're clearly not. You know, that thing is so also the Allies don't think. try and look like the Beatles, but and they don't even no, actually absolutely. try to pastiche the Beatles. They just happen to sound extraordinarily like them. Yeah. So that's a well, different. And also, so at some stage, there are ten musicians on the stage, as they have to be, in to order to be able to replicate exactly. every note that was yeah. done on the heavily overdubbed mm. record. You know. Yeah. And if you ever get the chance to see them, do go see them because yeah. they are really mm. remarkable. Yeah. Kevin, you had another point about you've been going back and revisiting old albums. I have. Some yeah. of them you thought stood up and yeah. still you could connect with, and some of them have been a disappointment. Give us an example of that. It's quite interesting. What, what, so what, so what, I, what I've been trying to do, actually, is going back to albums from bands that I love that I never caught on to. So it's almost like some of these bands aren't releasing music anymore, and like the Fountains of Wayne, for example, and you go back to their last album, and it's excellent. It is still yeah. high quality. Yeah. You know, one of the ones uh, that that another uh, um, podcast, I Am the Egg Pod, turned me on to. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Paul McCartney Fireman, uh, uh, you call it a side project? I don't know what you would call it exactly. It's a, it's yeah, a yeah. project. And the last album on that in that run is called Electric Arguments. And it actually has vocals and songs and and it is fabulous. It is a great, great record that I'd never hear people talking about. And, and it is full of songs. It is sonically interesting. McCartney is in great voice at the time. Uh, and it's the thing that you always talk that people always talk about with McCartney, where they say, if only there was someone who could get him to unleash a little bit more of his avant-garde side in a comfortable way. And, and I feel like that's what youth, who's the, who's the, the yeah, guy that's what's happened. Him, yeah. yeah. Really did that with him really well. I wish they would do another one because gosh, that last album, which is what I've been, one of the ones I've been listening to all year is, is fantastic. But also that side of McCartney so, isn't really appreciated. Nobody's looking for the experimental McCartney. Really, yeah. They're, they're well, expecting except, to be producing here, that, there ex- and everywhere. Yeah. Except that, I mean, the fireman, the one you just talked about, Kevin, how old is that? I guess it's roughly? probably like 95 or something like that. Yeah. 96. Okay, so, 30 so years it's, old. It's, okay, it's 25, 30 years old. Yeah. And the beautiful thing about music of any kind is it catches you eventually. <laughs> yeah. right. And, you know, it just does, you know, because what matters with music is whether you're receptive to it. And yeah. that you can't guarantee you're going to be on the wavelength at the point that a record's released. You won't be. You'll be thinking yeah. about something else. Your family or God knows what. Yeah. You know, the years later, you get you suddenly something strikes you. You just yeah. get in a mood. And um, and I find myself doing that with loads of music from, from ages ago, you know. So my view is don't go chasing music. Wait for music to come and chase you. Yeah, <laughs> they, yeah. they just be just be in when it comes calling. <laughs> you know? yeah. That's that's the trick, I think. Well, what I've tried yeah, to do with, with yeah. this thing is I've tried to be intentional about it, which I I feel like so much of today's music listening experience, for me at least, is either going into Spotify and just listening randomly to whatever playlists they offer me. Or listening on my on to my uh, MP3 music library kind of thing, in which case I'm almost always just shuffling the whole thing, you know. And so yeah, yeah. trying to be more target. It actually came up because I realized I'd never consciously listened through Sandinista. So a couple of years ago, 
I, I decided that every month I was going to listen to Sandinista just to get myself up to speed. <laughs> oh, that's a, 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 a big one. Is that a double or a triple? It's a triple, yeah. It, it, yeah. it should be double. It should be a single. Yeah. Yes, it should be. <laughs> God, that's oh, going dear. in the deep end. Yeah, and then I, yeah. I listened to R.E.M.'s last album, um, which, which I always, you know, I loved R.E.M. They were my band, you know, I sort of, they, they put out an album, uh, Greatest Hits album, and said, the band you grew up with. And they literally were the band that I grew up with. But that last album just never connected with me. I listened to it 12 times. Still didn't connect with me. So no, I, it's I, interesting. I don't know what that is, you know, but I also uh, listened to Counting It Crows. may happen. Yeah, that's a really yeah. good thing to be doing. That's brilliant. Yeah. You see, Thank I you so much. Believe, I, I also believe there's certain records you're not supposed to be parted from. And so I've had a few records recently where I found, I thought, have I still got that record? And these are my records I bought in 1972 and have literally listened to once. Yeah, wow. And it's still there. It's like, yeah. I'm still here. <laughs> you, haven't, you haven't thrown me away. You know? Yeah. And uh, yeah. it's it's a great pleasure when you find that. And the weird know, thing is when you lurking. hear those things, how you can hear almost immediately what the next notes are going to be or the next lyric or the next track's going to be because those things are embedded in the memory so clearly. It's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's very true. I, I would also okay, tell well, you next year on on my list for next year, thanks to uh, uh, David's uh, compilation, is the Jesse Winchester album, which I really haven't spent. Oh, I've, right. I've never listened to it all, but I'm going to put that on the rotation for 2023. 20, uh, so very good. Well, the, the, the the first two Jesse Winchester albums are both absolutely wonderful. This podcast was brought to you by the Word. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.